When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. And we're back on the College Football Survivor Show. It's Doug and Shahan, and we are talking about Dylan Rayola and other future stars of the 12-team playoff. We are looking ahead. It's hard. The gravitational pull of the 12-team playoff is strong, Shahan. So we're, you know, when we get closer to the season, plenty of love for what's going to happen in 2023. But we have a major recruiting moment in college football this week. Dylan Rayola, the number one overall recruit by, I think, every service in the country in the class of 2024. One time, Ohio State commit, family connections at Nebraska, USC was interested, wound up choosing between, after decommitting from Ohio State, between USC, Nebraska, and Georgia, chooses Georgia. And it's hard to say, Shahan, that it's like a game changer for the best program in the country, but I think it's a game changer for the best program in the country. So we want to talk about Dylan Rayola is not going to be in college until 2024. He's always going to live in the 12-team playoff. What might he matter? How could he matter to the 12-team playoff? And then we're going to talk about other young players. It's either guys who were freshmen last season, will be freshmen this year, or are a year removed. So it's a class of 22, 23, and 24 guys, which means they're all going to be around for the 12-team playoff. Their impacts so far have been minimal, but we think their impacts down the line will be gigantic, Shahan. But we'll start with Dylan Rayola. How do you characterize this commitment, what it means for college football? Well, I, I think that when we look at Georgia We've been kind of ahead on the idea that their 2022 team was an offensive team, but obviously Stetson Bennett is not sort of a uh, stylistically like talent. You know, we're not talking about him as this generational type quarterback as as a talent, right? I think that they found a really good offense that worked around him. But even with Carson Beck potentially taking over right now, we've talked about the addition of that downfield passing game. I mean, Dylan Rayola is a whole nother level of that. He is a whole nother level of being able to add that component to an already strong offensive game. You know, obviously they use the middle of the field really well. They use the tight ends really well. What Dylan Rayola adds is the ability to go outside and to to just extend the field. It changes the way that I think that Georgia is able to play offense tremendously. The other part of this too, and you know, another name that, that I'm sure that we might get to in a second is Arch Manning. You know, Dylan Rayola committing to Georgia changes the way that every offensive recruit in college football is going to look at the University of Georgia because, one, they have the endorsement of Dylan Rayola, the number one player in the class of 2024. Uh, but also, I think that it speaks well of the idea that Georgia is not just willing to continue to grow on the offensive side of the ball, but that they are making it a priority to grow on the offensive side of the ball. So, you know, we actually saw this again last year. Georgia went really, really hard after Arch Manning. And then this upcoming year, obviously, now they've gotten the commitment of Dylan Rayola. Obviously, when you win two national championships, you can compete for the number one player in the country. That's not a surprise. This is actually the third number one overall player that Georgia has signed uh, 
since I believe 2016. So it's not a surprise that they landed the number one player in the country, but both of those two other guys who they landed, uh, Trenton Thompson, I believe it was, and Nolan Smith, those guys were both defensive guys. This is different. This is different to not just get the number one quarterback in the country, but to get them uh, to get this guy over Ohio State, to get him over USC, to get him over Texas, to get him over Alabama. Obviously, with the connections at Nebraska, like you mentioned, his dad was a former All-American player over there. His uncle is the offensive line coach over there. Nebraska made him not just a priority, but like the priority. And I, I think for Georgia to be able to land a quarterback of this caliber, Again, it just changes the way I think that uh, that everybody looks at the offensive side of the ball with this program. I, when he committed to Ohio State, and as people know, I, I live in Ohio. I've covered Ohio State for two decades. I thought it was groundbreaking for Ohio State, even though Ohio State has had very good quarterback play under Ryan Day. And they had good quarterback play beyond that, but like NFL-style quarterback play. Dwayne Haskins was inherited by Ryan Day when he got here. Justin Fields was a transfer. C.J. Stroud, they added late in the class as a second quarterback. Kyle McCord, if he wins the starting job for Ohio State this year, that's sort of like the first guy that Ryan Day went out and identified and said, I want that guy. You win the recruitment early. You could develop him for a long time before it even gets to campus. That's the first like real plan for Ryan Day. But Dylan Rayola goes to high school in Arizona. I thought to win... Lincoln Riley gets to USC just enough to like get in on the Dylan Rayola recruitment. And it's like, here's this first sort of showdown. What are the two best offenses in college football? Who are the two best quarterback developers, right? It's like a Lincoln Riley in California, Ryan Day in Ohio showdown for this Arizona kid with Nebraska roots. And Ryan Day wins it. Ohio State wins it. And I was like, this is huge for Ohio State and Ryan Day to have done this, to have staved off Lincoln Riley as he's trying to get the mojo going in Los Angeles. And then it's like, no, he's going to the two-time national champ that is known for defense. Like that is, it's almost stunning. And on top of it, that Todd Munkin, who we talk about a lot on this podcast, is gone. I think he was one of the guys that was, I thought the Munkin leaving for the NFL after last season, I thought that, might blow a hole in Georgia's hopes of landing Dylan Raiola. Because right now, right, we know they win. But for an offensive player, and this is one of those things, you can't, I can't, you can't, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, just because other people have done it. But you can't do this to high school kids, you can't do it to high school kids. But this guy is off-platform, a little magic with the ball in his hands. Like, he's not a pure pocket passer. He's not a runner. People compare him to Patrick Mahomes. What? Oh, my gosh. I can't believe that. The, the quarterback was compared to Patrick Mahomes? Oh, my gosh. I know. I didn't. I said, I, <laughs> my lesson is I was on an internship as uh, doing some high school sports <laughs> reporting when I was very young, and I compared a high school running back to Barry Sanders and the sports editor like that night, like picked me up by my shirt and would like throw me out of the building and be like, you do not compare high school running backs to Barry Sanders. <laughs> so now here I am 25 years later doing it again, but I'm only doing it, but it's more, it's style of play that yeah, this, this yeah, guy yeah. is, is he creates out of, out of the pocket. And the part of it, cause even Georgia, right. We just talked about Carson Beck, who's winning that job. It feels like at Georgia to replace Stetson Bennett is the most pocket passer of that group. Brock Vandegrift, 
runs a little bit more. I think Gunnar Stockton runs even more than that. And they're sort of sticking with the pocket guy. They haven't developed high-level receivers. They just lost their offensive coordinator who led the offense the last two national titles. They backed into their two-time national championship quarterback who they tried to not play, not just behind JT Daniels, but he was third on the depth chart to start the 2021 season. And they won with defense. And that Dylan Royola with no connection. There's no family connection. There's no geographic connection. Nothing. All it is, is they win, but they don't win by doing what he does. I do feel like it is a little earth-shaking for college football, Shahan, because if George is going to get guys like this, I don't think they're going to stop getting defensive five stars. Like, what are we talking about here? No, it's going to, I think, be really big for them. Uh, like, like you said, the the fact that Todd Monken left and that, Dylan Rayola and his family still trust Mike Bobo to take over that offense and, and do big things with it. I think it's pretty significant. That's again, quite an endorsement. We'll see whether Mike Bobo long term is that guy who's around. I mean, certainly I think, uh, George is going to have options if this year doesn't go according to plan, but you trust the machine there. You trust what they're building there. And I, I think it's really significant. One one short thing that I'll mention, um, you know, I, I don't want to make this about Ohio State because it's about Georgia. It's really interesting to me, right? I mean, they miss out, obviously, on this number one sort of Patrick Mahomes type quarterback, who I, I think is really somebody who has a chance to even take Ohio State's really, really good offense to the next level. And something to keep an eye on. They, they got a great commitment, uh, a top 60 player, Aaron Noland. He's going to be really good for them. But Michigan has a higher-ranked quarterback in the class of 2024 than Ohio State does. That's not a situation we've been in before. I mean, obviously, J.J. McCarthy was right up there with, uh, you know, with Kyle McCord and, and, and all these sort of guys. But, like, we don't see at these key positions Michigan competing with Ohio State. I'm not saying it's something that's going to matter necessarily. I think that, you know, for me, I still much prefer Ohio State's offensive system. I think that it's a more effective system. But we're not used to this. We're not used to Michigan having potentially better recruits at some key positions. It is something that I'm going to be keeping an eye on. Not something that I think is definitive at this point, but it's something I'm going to be keeping an eye on. I mean, it makes sense, right? When you are sort of known for a thing and that's your edge, right? That's where you're better than everybody else. If you don't keep that edge, then you wonder, right? And it doesn't, like you said, it's just Michigan has not been a place for quarterbacks. Georgia has not been a place for quarterbacks. And I do think we have seen this. I think there's a very clear, we'll keep making the same comparison. We'll stop making comparisons between early Saban Bama and Kirby Smart at Georgia. We'll stop making comparisons when they stop making sense. They keep making sense. Bama was winning without super high-level quarterback recruits early on. And then once they got the winning under them and Saban said, hey, we got to open up the offense a little bit, they graduated to the next level. Now, in the end, it's like, well, they didn't win. The best quarterback recruit they ever had was Bryce Young, who won a Heisman, who's like the best, maybe the best quarterback they've ever had. And they didn't win a, a national title with him. But still, you can't deny the fact that the quarterback recruiting and the quarterback play improved when you look at what Saban did early on, right? He inherits Greg McElroy. Greg McElroy is recruited by Mike Shula. And then that's the guy who is Saban's starting quarterback and they win early with him. 
right? Then it's A.J. McCarron. A.J. McCarron was a top 100 national recruit in the class of 2009, and he just like wipes it out. He's the starting quarterback for three years, and they are trying to bring in some other guys, and like it never really happens with those guys. And then after A.J. McCarron, they wind up with Blake Sims, who's an athlete designation at a high school, actually plays a little defense, winds up as the quarterback in 2014. And if they have a higher level quarterback in 2014, maybe they don't lose to Ohio State in that semifinal. But it does it does matter there. 2015, Jake Coker's a starting quarterback. He's transferred from Florida State. And the reason they're sort of there is because they have some guys. They want Cooper Bateman, David Cornwell, and Blake Barnett. In the classes of 13, 14, and 15, they're all top 100 national recruits. None of them wind up being the starter at Alabama. So you wind up with Blake Sims starting for one year. You wind up with Coker as a transfer. And then Jalen Hurts beats out a couple of those guys. Blake Barnett actually starts the opener in 16 and gets benched at halftime. Jalen Hurts takes over and away he goes. Then it's Hurts in 16 and 17. Then you get to Tua. Tua is the number 32 overall recruit in the country in his class. That's a big deal. But really, they don't hit a Rayol. Tua's very, very, very highly rated. He's in the class of 2017. Jalen Hurts is an extraordinary player for a couple of years, and we see what he has become. He was the number 192 overall recruit. But Bama doesn't hit their Rayola-level quarterback recruit until Bryce Young. Until Nick Saban's been there forever. He's the number two overall player, the number one overall recruit, the number one overall quarterback, number two overall recruit in the class of 2020. Up there with C.J. Stroud and D.J. Uyunglele, we know how big that quarterback group is. But anyway, Shahan, that's the point. Saban, how do you win? Well, you know, I really lean on McElroy and McCarron early on. Then we kind of have a little weird stuff where guys don't exactly develop. The, the biggest thing that Blake Barnett and David Cornwell ever got famous for is after they lost the job to Jalen Hurts, like several years later, they had a Twitter fight. I did not realize this at the moment. They had a Twitter fight where they were like accusing each other of things. They made it very clear that they were not friends at Alabama. These are two <laughs> top 100 quarterbacks. That's how bad the Alabama recruiting and development was going at quarterback. <laughs> but then Bryce Young's Bryce Young. You see what Tua did. You see what Bryce Young did. And now here we are where the expectation level for all the Alabama quarterbacks have been raised. And that's why they brought in Taylor Tyler Buckner because maybe Jalen Milrow and Ty Simpson aren't quite meeting. I think they would meet the old standard. Win with defense, win with run game. Okay, maybe these guys can be Greg McElroy or A.J. McCarron or Blake Sims. But if your standard is now Jalen Hurts, Tua Tonga-Vailoa, Bryce Young, throw Mac Jones in there, who was a low recruit and a first-round pick as a result of his development. Now the Alabama quarterback standard has been raised. Georgia just raised its quarterback standard faster. They got there faster. Now Kirby's been there a while, but they got fast. got there faster than Bama did. So now, like, I... I I don't know, Shahan. I, are we worried for the rest of college football? <laughs> are they going to have – because, as you said, they're, they're now going to attract some better receiver recruits, and they have not pumped out receivers. They might get some better. Okay, oh, I want to go. I'll go play offensive tackle and block for Dylan Rayola. Like, these guys rally around a recruit. I don't know, man. Like, we thought the Georgia the Georgia dynasty was coming already. Don't, doesn't this just – this just doubles down – on all of that thinking, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that certainly you have to make them the presumptive favorite for essentially the next 10 years in college football. But, you know, things change. College football is a very fluid sport. The reality is 
the only coach who's really, really done this for that amount of time is Nick Saban. Nobody else has really had that run of dominance. So it's going to be really interesting. I'm going to be keeping a very close eye on Georgia. I think that, again, they are the presumptive favorites until they're not. And certainly, you know, I I had them as my number one team heading into 2023 because I think they just deserve that presumption. But it's going to be interesting. It's definitely going to be interesting. Uh, But Dylan Rayola certainly raises the floor dramatically and and changes potentially what this program could look like long term. And I know people could say, oh, just because the guy's a recruit. All right. So what doesn't mean, you know. The people who think that recruiting is a coin flip and it's like, okay, nothing's guaranteed, <laughs> no, but guess what? It yeah, also matters. I mean, the thing is, I we put out a piece uh, like months, months, months before the class of 2023 came together, kind of projecting where Arch Manning should go potentially, right? And I made the case for Tex at the time before he committed because Arch Manning's commitment isn't about whether he's good at football. It's about what it says to the rest of college football. It says to college football, Texas is a real team, a real contender. Top recruits come over here. They put together a top three class in the nation. They got a five-star wide receiver. I think the number one receiver in the nation. Like That's what it's about. It's about what it says to every other recruit in this cycle and whether George is able to capitalize on it. So even if Dylan Rayola is only pretty good, that doesn't make him not the number one quarterback recruit in the country. And by the way, I, I think he's really, really good. So let's just look back quickly at a couple of the t- last previous cycles, the top quarterbacks, the number one quarterback in each class. What happened? It's like, oh, we think Dylan Rayola is going to make George even better. Is he? All right, 2017, number one quarterback. This is Tua's class. He's not really the number one quarterback. It's like it's Davis Mills who goes to Stanford, but that's Stanford, and he's in the NFL now. I'm going to be in a fourth-round pick. Stanford was just bad at everything else. And it's not like, I mean, I don't know that anyone, when Davis Mills picked Stanford, I don't know that people were like, well, that's it. Mark down three national titles for Stanford, right? So it's just, if you're going to Stanford, it's just a little bit of a thing. 2018 number one quarterbacks, Trevor Lawrence. Who? He goes to Clemson. He, like, have they been good under Deshaun Watson? Are they going to keep it going? Yeah, he wins a national title as a true freshman. He's Trevor Lawrence. He's number one pick in the draft. So yeah, Dylan Rayola might be that. That would matter. That would really matter. 2019, it's Spencer Rattler at Oklahoma, who is on track to be all those things, to maybe bring a national title to Oklahoma, to win a Heisman. He's a Heisman favorite going in to his second year, I guess. And then it just gets goofy. It got goofy. Now, so maybe, you know, sometimes stuff gets goofy, but it wasn't like the expectations weren't there. 2020, it's Bryce Young. Bryce Young's the best quarterback. He goes on to win the Heisman, and he doesn't win a national title, but it's not his fault. 2021, it's Quinn Ewers, but it should be Caleb Williams because Quinn Ewers um, goes a year early, reclassifies, and so he gets dropped in as the number one quarterback in that class. But the whole time, it's Caleb Williams, who, by the way, just won in Heisman at USC and is the reason that people are talking about USC as a playoff contender right now. And he had him if he stayed healthy, they might have made the, the playoff last year. So, so okay, maybe Dylan Rayola's Caleb Williams. That would be a big deal. 2022, this should have been Quinn Ewers if we didn't reclassify, but it's Drew Aller as it works out. He's at Penn State. We might talk about him later. People think Drew Aller might change, like might elevate Penn State to a place they've never been before. And then 2023 is Arch Manning might do the same thing at Texas. So when you think about the impact that Trevor Lawrence, Bryce Young, Caleb Williams have made, 
that's out there for Dylan Royola. Yes, it's not everybody, but you think about the expectations of Drew Aller at Penn State, Arch Manning at Texas. I think Dylan Royola at Georgia is even, it's beyond that. It's a, it steps beyond even, like, Arch is very good, but there's just another layer to Arch with the Manning name. Like, on-field play, Dylan Rayola is even beyond that. No, and, and I mean, obviously, like you mentioned, when you go to Stanford, you're kind of just doing a thing. Uh, you know, same with Texas. You, you just like want to go hang out and not actually play good football. It's fine. Um, no, but, but I think, no, and, and legitimately, legitimately, I'll, I'll take off the act for a second. Quinn Ewers and Arch Manning going to Texas has transformed the way that people look at Texas as recruits. Right. I mean, they put together a top three class. They had an insane run of, uh, of offensive skill talent that came. They got the number one running back in the country this past year. They got the number one receiver in the country this past year. Uh, obviously last year they got, uh, Kelvin Banks, one of the best offensive linemen in the country. It's somebody who I think is under consideration for, for a list like this because of how good he is. Like it has changed things. Will they do anything with it? That's obviously the question. But but it has absolutely changed the way that uh, that people look at this program, the way that recruits look at this program. I mean, look at the top receivers they got in the class of 2022 before the transfers and before Arch Manning. And then you look this this upcoming year. It's John Tay Cook, the number 29 player in the class. It's Ryan Niblett, the number 64 player in the class. It matters. It changes the way that people look at programs. Uh, it's not a guarantee of success. That's that's what I'll say about that. All right, so we're thinking about we each made lists of seven young stars that we believe will have an effect on the 12-team playoff. Dylan Rayola is on both of our lists. Who else are the players who are either going to be seniors in high school this fall, will be freshmen this fall, or will be sophomores right in college this fall? We'll get to the rest of those lists next on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Doug and Shahan back. Make sure you're reading Shahan J. Haraja at CBSSports.com. Shahan, you guys have a list of best coaches in the country coming out at CBS Sports, which I think we will dive into ourselves later this week on the College Football Survivor Show. What? what so we want to point people to that. How, was that fun making that list? Did it drive you crazy? What'd you think? Uh, both. It's really fun to go through the top. Uh, and it's really fun to go through the bottom too. I actually, the middle is just like, it's such a headache <laughs> because, you know, for me, the way that I end up doing this is like, I'll just kind of pull guys who I feel pretty confident about. And then almost everybody else, I'm like, sometimes I have like these benchmarks, like these, like, this is like an average coach to me. Do I have this other guy that I'm putting on the list above or below that this year? I, I felt like my like very much average to below average that I was working with was Billy Napier. And I was like, eh, you know, he's obviously had such a great run, but he was not good this past year at Florida. So you got to knock him down a little bit. And so it was just slotting guys above and below Billy Napier. I, I will say definitely do not have your boy, Pat Fitzgerald's anywhere near the, the top mm. of my list right now he's a uh, he's he's on a little bit of a cold streak there but no this is a fun list uh I, I think that we're planning to maybe talk about our top 10 which y'all are gonna have uh a, l- let's put it this way i know that we have some ohio state fans who listen to this podcast they might have some thoughts about uh about my top 10 whenever we're done with that so. oh that'll be good 
It's hard when you're winless in America, as Pat Fitzgerald <laughs> was last year. That makes it hard. Yeah. Uh, not the, a very compelling case. Our, our consensus list hasn't come out as yet. On my ballot, I had him at 41. So, you know, that's... Which is ahead or below Billy Napier. <laughs> that is ahead of Billy Napier. I had Billy Napier at 44. Okay. Na- I like the Napier line. <laughs> I think you could write a whole piece about the Napier line, right? I do think that's a smart way to do Which it. Which sucks, by the way, because like we we were all over Billy Napier last cycle, yeah. and it just has not worked out, and the recruiting has been bad, and it doesn't look very promising this upcoming year. So, you, you know, I, I think that Billy Napier is a coach that is going to build an organization and maybe in three or four years, it actually pays off a little bit more, but woo boy, I did not like what I saw. I, I, <laughs> I will say, um, you want to know who's the first coach below my Na- Napier line? Who, who Steve Sarkeesian. Yes. <laughs> I knew. <laughs> wow this is this is getting a little i don't know this is I, I might need to like detox on this this is not this is not good that i want i want like gary danielson and and uh brad nestler talking about the napier line on cbs <laughs> college football broadcasts like it's a, it'll become an official part of cbs football coverage well you know the napier line i mean like steve sarkis really needs to beat alabama try to get above the napier line this week um, okay, so let's we're going to talk about other guys, other young stars that we think will will matter in the twelve team playoff. I do have one other player in the class of twenty twenty four beyond Dylan Rayo. Okay, guys who will who will not be here until we get to the twelve team playoff, and it's an obvious one. I, it's not like I went down. It's like you know what? I think the eighty first player in that class really is going to make an impact. It's the guy who's the consensus number two player in the class of twenty twenty four, and it's Jeremiah Smith, who is a receiver out of Florida, who's committed to Ohio State right now. And the reason that I have him, it's like, oh, Ohio State has a five-star receiver. What else is new? He's 6'3", and we talk about this a lot, the evolution of players. Like, There's players at a position at a school, and how can you get better? How can you get better? How can you get better? It's possible that Marvin Harrison Jr. is the final iteration of what an Ohio State receiver can be, and you can go back to Chris Carter to start that. You can go back to Paul Warfield to start that if you want, and then go to Chris Carter, and you go to Terry Glenn and David Boston and and Ted Ginn Jr. and San Antonio Holmes and Michael Thomas, and now here we are with Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave and Jackson Smith and Jigba, and you get to Marvin, Marvin Harrison Jr., and how can you be better than that? Well, that's, I'm not going to say anybody at Ohio State is ever going to be better than Marvin Harrison Jr. as a receiver, but if I'm going to make a list of guys who maybe have a chance to join that conversation, I think it's Jeremiah Smith, just because the ball skills and the size. And as soon as Dylan Rayola committed to Georgia, he had a quote out there that was like, I don't know. I think I'm going to have to look at Georgia now. And everybody like around Ohio State, Ohio State fans were like, what? And then he like tweeted it later. He's like, I'm just kidding. And it's like, oh, <laughs> is this how this is going to be? This is what Yikes. it's going to be like until December for Ohio State fans. Like, oh, I'm committed. I, he loves Hartline. He loves Brian Hartline, the receivers coach, now offensive coordinator at Ohio State. It's like, I love you guys, but I'm just, I might just have a little fun. And in the meantime, like <laughs> Ohio State fans are going to be pulling their hair out. So, but this guy, you know, they have Brandon Ennis and Carnell Tate as young five star receivers who might impact Ohio State right now this season a little bit. But. Again, I do think Jeremiah Smith is just has a chance to be even more. So even at a place that has a lot of good receivers, he has a chance to be special. And even if he says he's just joking around, until you get to December and you sign on the dotted line, I mean, this is a huge get for anybody. 
And every big-time quarterback in the class, whether it's Dylan Rayola or anybody else, is probably going to be in Jeremiah Smith that you're trying to get him to come. So, But I do think he might be a guy who, in the 2025 or 2026 college football playoff, you know, is trying to lead Ohio State into the semifinals. No, well, and, and we've talked about this before. Nothing is guaranteed. We talk about that Alabama wide receiver group and are just like, they're going to keep doing it just forever. And it doesn't happen. It didn't happen. Wide receiver play was one of Alabama's biggest issues and reasons that they didn't compete for the SEC in 2022. I have questions, for example, about Ohio State's quarterback this upcoming year. I don't know if they're going to be special. We kind of just assume it's going to go from Dwayne Haskins to Justin Fields to CJ Stroud to something even better. Maybe not. It's not a guarantee with this stuff. So for Ohio State to come out, and obviously Brian Hartline is such a big part of that, uh, and land the number two wide receiver or number two player at a, at wide receiver in the entire country, I, I don't think it's something that you can just assume. And I don't think that it's something that you can just gloss over. So the fact that wide receivers still see Ohio State as the destination in college football, I think is still very significant. And certainly it helps when you have the machine that Ohio State has created at receiver and and the consistency that they put players out. But I, I agree. I think that I'm not going to sit here and try to say that Jeremiah Smith might be better than Marvin Harrison Jr. because <laughs> Marvin Harrison Jr. is really good. And and frankly, I also think that Jackson Smith and Jigba might be as good as any wide receiver who's come through Ohio State, even though he didn't get to play much, obviously, uh, during his final season out there. But... I mean, this is the number two player in the country. This is a game-changing recruit who everybody in the country wants. Ohio State being able to lock up that player early and keep him on board is very significant. Did you have anybody else in the class of 2024? Oh, man, I, I just have a list of guys. That now, now you're making me go back. I don't believe that I had another 2024, but yeah. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. So I mean, it's hard to project, but we do have guys. We're going to project on some guys who have not played a snap of college football yet. Wait, do I, you? I, I considered one more that I will mention briefly, and, and that's Jaden Davis at Michigan, the quarterback who I mentioned, the five-star quarterback. I Just from watching him, I think he's a different – I mean, everybody knows that I'm like a slight J.J. McCarthy skeptic. I think that Jaden Davis is a different kind of quarterback. I think that he's just a little bit more mobile. I mean, obviously, J.J. McCarthy's mobile, but I think that he's just a little bit more of a, a player who's comfortable on the move. I think he's somebody who can throw a sort, sort of off-platform a little bit more consistently. He's somebody who, again – I think sends a message to the rest of college football that this is a program that is serious about offense and, and kind of tied in with that. I'd also t- uh, throw in, you know, they they landed the number two tight end in the country and Brady Priestcorn that same year. That's significant. Like, I, I think it's great that they are now starting to get these offensive guys at a high level as well. And I think that's going to change what they can do. He wasn't actually on my list of seven, but he was somebody who I heavily considered. And I will say that's that's smart to add that in there because again I think we're I think he's Michigan's version of Dylan Rayola. Yep, yep. Like we're talking about Georgia and Michigan that win without relying on great passing yep. games. But now, what if you add a great passing game to that? I'll I'll throw in Julian Sand yep. in there, who's the Alabama quarterback recruit in the class of 2024. Just because when we had Mike Rodak from AL.com on here a couple of weeks ago when you were out, Shahad, and we were talking about the future of Alabama quarterbacks and Jalen Milrow and Ty Simpson, and now they're bringing in Tyler Buckner. And I was like, hey, who do you think is going to be 
Alabama's starting quarterback. I, you know, they're working all this stuff out. Who's going to be the starting quarterback in 2024 or 2025? And he's like, I think it might be Julian Sand. That like they're in a little bit of a confused what there's no doubt about it. When you bring in a Notre Dame guy after spring yeah, football in the competition, you're uncertain. That's not from strength. That's from confusion. But it might be a one-year blip. Now, you're going to put that on Julian Sand for sure. Hey, come in and be a starter as a true freshman. But if you're thinking about the future of Alabama quarterback play, it really might not be on campus right now. And if you're looking for the next iteration that builds on Jalen Hurts, Tua Tonga-Vailoa, Mac Jones, Bryce Young, it might be him. And he's not here yet. So we have to keep him in mind as well. Yeah. And I think that's a good transition to my class of 2023 guy or one of my class of 2023 guys, okay. because I'm sticking with the University of Alabama for this first pick. I'm actually going with Caden Proctor, the offensive. Line. God, I have him, too. We're too. Oh, wow. I have wow him too. Look at that. So what's interesting about this, right, is Alabama in the class of 2021 signed two top 10 players who were offensive tackles. Uh, Tommy Brockermeyer was, I guess, a bust. He's now at TCU, where where he's getting good reviews now. Um, and, and JC Latham was the other one who's he's played pretty well. Before that, it was 2019 with Evan Neal when they had a top ten type lineman. And so for Alabama landing one of these, frankly, sure thing offensive linemen is huge. I think. I mean, Alabama's offensive line play the last two years has not been very impressive. And, and to land a player like this, I think is significant. The other part of it too is this was not something that was promised, right? Up until I think it was literally signing day, Caden Proctor was committed to his in-state program of Iowa. And that would have been a game-changing type recruit for them as well. But for Alabama to still be able to make the pitch that, hey, we send more people to the NFL than anybody. We develop linemen better than anybody. I, I think that's going to be really significant. We've seen so many players, and I've mentioned this uh, on the defensive line, especially, you know, with Texas A&M, for example, coming in and and using, you know, their, their great staff and NIL to be able to attract these high-end defensive linemen. It has left a vacuum at Alabama, I think, in a lot of ways. That's been, I think, the case as well on the offensive side of the ball. You, you see guys, you know, going to Texas, for example, with their offensive line focus NIL program. They haven't landed these guys consistently these past couple of years. I think landing Caden Proctor, who, again, to me is a sure thing, potentially, potentially a day one starter. I, I mean, if not, certainly a year two starter. Somebody's going to be there for, for several years and be a big time player. I think this is really significant. I think that, uh, if if you had Caden Proctor this past year to protect Bryce Young, this season might have looked a little bit different. In a world where Alabama was bringing in a Vanderbilt transfer to play left tackle, <laughs> right, this past right, season, right. I mean, like to lock down a guy like this and to get him out of Iowa. I mean, this would have been a huge get. But also, this I, this contributed a little bit. Ohio State made a change at its offensive line coach before last season, and. If you're if a Midwest kid's not going to go to the home state school, that's all, that's Ohio State territory, right? And Ohio State is in a tackle has some tackle problems yeah, right yeah. now. If Caden Proctor was at Ohio State right now, I think he'd be getting ready to be a day one starter at Ohio State. So I love the Caden Proctor choice. Since you took took him, I'll throw in another Bama freshman that I didn't have on my list originally, but I almost did. And it's Caleb Downs at safety. Sure. Again, if you anyone who listens to that podcast, Mike Rodak talked about him a lot. He thinks Caleb Downs is a true freshman this year, has a chance to be one of the three or four best players on that defense. And I think we know what game-changing Bama safeties look like. Like if you land in Collins in 2014, it's like, 
Blake Simmons was their quarterback, but if you wanted to know what Bamba was about that year, yeah, they're going to run the ball, right? But like Landon Collins, there's representative guys. And Caleb Downs is smart. Caleb Downs is ready. Caleb Downs might start right away at Alabama. And again, that's a guy that Georgia wanted. That's a guy that Ohio State wanted. There's, he's an impact guy because part of the issue here, when we're talking about it from a recruiting perspective, Shahan, and at some point we let this go, but when it's a recruiting conversation, it's not just about where you are, it's about where you're not. So the idea that Caden Proctor is huge for Alabama, but what if he was at Iowa? What if he was at Ohio State? The idea that Jeremiah Sims is a huge recruit for Ohio State, but what if he flips? That Dylan Oriola, not only that he picked Georgia, but he didn't pick USC or he didn't pick Nebraska or he didn't pick Ohio State. There's the ripple effect that really matters in all these conversations. So I do think Caden Proctor and Caleb Downs are two guys that are going to be impactful right away for Alabama. They could be Alabama's two best players in 2024 in the first year of the 12-team playoff as, as sophomores. That's, I think, what we're talking about with Proctor and Downs, but also that they're not somewhere else. Okay, who else do you have in the class of 2023 then, the, the true freshman for this season? Yeah, so I, I have uh, I've tried to stay away from quarterbacks because I think that it's just so easy to just do quarterbacks. But oh, I did quarterbacks because they are easy. Sorry, <laughs> that's why I was so excited to have Aiden Proctor because he was a non-quarterback. So get ready for more quarterbacks. No, no, I'm glad you stayed away though. There was one quarterback who I felt like I definitely needed to include, and that was Nico Yamilieva at Tennessee because. Also on my yeah, list. Yeah, he, he ended up, I believe, the number two player in the class by a lot of places, uh, only behind Arch Manning. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that Arch Manning was only number one because of the name on the back of his jersey, but I'm just saying it didn't necessarily hurt that situation. So, you know, if you're Tennessee, you can tell yourself you have the number one recruit in the nation. I'm fine with that. Uh, but a game-changing quarterback. He committed early. He stuck through the process. And, you know, we talk about the impact of these kind of quarterback recruits. I mean, this is this is very much this. Hendon Hooker was such a good player for Tennessee, but obviously he was older and limited. This is a quarterback who has zero limitations, absolutely none. And I, I think that he might be somebody who's starting for Tennessee by the end of this year. Obviously, he's going to be the quarterback next year when Joe Milton runs out of eligibility, but he's just a game-changing type of player. I almost don't think it matters very much who you're playing at receiver around him when you've got a quarterback like Nico in the lineup. And certainly that offensive system, uh, you know, we can have conversations about how well it prepares you for the NFL, but it's not Josh Heupel's job to prepare you for the NFL. It's Josh Heupel's job to go out and win football games. And I, I think this combination has the chance to be absolutely explosive. And when you look at the SEC and especially, you know, the legacy SEC East, obviously, I, I think that that's going to change uh, how it's set up next year. Tennessee is probably the only team that you can look at right now and say, if things break the w right way, maybe this is a program that can compete with Georgia. It's a lot to ask. They couldn't do it last year, certainly. But I think that Nico is the kind of like Johnny Manziel type, the, the t you know, Chad Kelly type who was able to give uh, Alabama some issues in the mid 2010s. And you never know. And, and I do think it's not that Tennessee can't be good this year, but, you know, they lost a couple of the receivers. You lose Hendon Hooker and that group with Josh Hyper really laid a foundation for this new era of Tennessee football. Now you hope Nico can take it to the next step. Is that going to happen as a true freshman this year? No, but, and you don't give up on this year, but really, you know, this year, a lot of it is about, is about 
getting Nico Iamalieva ready to maximize him in 2024 and 2025, where you're not going to have to beat Georgia and Alabama to get into the playoff. Tennessee would have made the, if Hendon Hooker had stayed healthy, Tennessee would have made the playoff last year, but they got in a situation where they beat Bama in maybe the best game of the regular season at home. And then it was like, all right, well, if you want to make the playoff, you still got to go to Georgia and win. And then they don't. It's like, oh man, well, that's going to be different. So Nico, get him in. He's going to have a chance. He's going to be a problem for somebody if they get into the playoff in 24 or 25. So I'll now throw in what I think is the West Coast version of this. Almost the exact same thing, which is Dante Moore at UCLA. And it is a situation where Hendon Hooker established something with Josh Heupel. Dorian Thompson-Robinson, who played forever at UCLA, he's basically been Chip Kelly's only quarterback at UCLA. When he really got good late in his career, UCLA elevated. Well, now what? Now he's gone. Now what could be next if Dante Moore is even more than that? Will Dante Moore be the day one starter for UCLA this season as a true freshman? Maybe, maybe not. But it really is about what can UCLA be in 24 and 25 when they're going to be in the Big Ten? But okay, you don't have to be better than USC. You don't have to be better than Ohio State and Michigan. You just have to maybe try to be the third best team in the Big Ten in 24 or 25 with a five-star quarterback. And what does that look like? So I I think there's possibility there, and I view Tennessee and UCLA. And again, the 12-team playoff factors into this discussion, Shahan, because if we were just talking about UCLA and Tennessee and what young stars could impact the playoff, it's like, well, I don't know. Do we really think Tennessee is going to get past Georgia? Do we really think UCLA is going to be better than USC? Or if they're going to the Big Ten, they're going to be better than Michigan and Ohio State and USC? That's a tall order. But now in this world, Could we see Nico or Dante in it as a nine seed? Nobody wants to play sometime in 24 or 25. Absolutely. And that's what UCLA and Tennessee have to be gearing toward. You're not punting on this year, but the world's changing, baby. And you might be prepared to take advantage of it. Yeah, no, I I think that it's a really good pick. I think that it's a natural pick. I mean, you know, UCLA doesn't land players like this at quarterback. They just don't. I mean, they landed one of them in Dorian Thompson Robinson and they rode for five years with them because this doesn't happen very often. So I, I like the pick. I think that he's somebody who definitely gives this program a little bit more of a ceiling. Uh, he's somebody who I think is a legitimate pro prospect uh, coming into UCLA and I think will be from day one. I'm going to be really curious. You know, the one thing that I'm kind of waiting to see, I guess I'd say, with UCLA and with Dante Moore is is players coming to join him. He joined so late in the process of this 2023 recruiting class just because he, you know, he's committed to Oregon up until I believe December. Now I think that that UCLA needs to prove that it can put those players around him in the class of 2024 uh, just to have it ready whenever it's time. But it's a good pick. I think that he's a game changer out there. And and this is the kind of recruit that they haven't been landing consistently that, that has a chance to maybe change their program. All right. Do you have anybody else in the class of 2023, the guys who are, will be freshmen this coming season? Yes, I have. I have one combo of guys, uh, but but they go together, I promise. So I'm, I'm going with Francis Maui Goa and Samson Okunlola at uh, at Miami, two five star offensive tackles. Obviously, Mario Cristobal is an offensive line coach by trade. He landed two of the best in the entire country during this cycle. 
And you know what? I think that they are the type of players who could start there for three or four years. Like they are potentially that good. I think that that Maui Goa, they've really kind of already slotted in at that left tackle spot, which is pretty impressive for a true freshman who just got on campus. And, you know, a comparison that I'd make is, you know, when Texas signed Kelvin Banks last year, the left tackle position is just solved. It's just solved. And when you're able to lock down that position at a high level and have two guys that you can build around long term, it changes the trajectory of your program. So I, I think that these two guys have the potential to be really special. And and in three or four years, we could hear both of their names called in the first round of the NFL draft. And I and I love that. We've talked about tackles so much this spring that again, when you're what that's the desperation spot in the portal. For the teams that think they're ready to win, but they're uncertain at a tackle spot, those guys go like hotcakes. And when you have tackle, when you have two tackles, two offensive tackles you believe in, it just settles everything. And so I think that, okay, Miami, what else you got to do? All right, we got to, are you going to have the quarterback play? Are you going to have the defense, whatever? But like, you're going to allow yourself to have a chance on offense if your tackles are settled. So I think that's a really good pick. If we then are ready to move off the 2023 guys, does that mean that neither of us have Arch Manning at Texas? on our list (laughs) and is it because we just feel like arch manning at texas gets talked to death or does it is it because we don't actually believe that texas with arch manning are going to be in the thick of the playoff race in 24 and 25 it's it's more the first one i think uh, because i do think that texas will be in the conversation at least for for all my jokes uh the other part of it too is that Arch Manning has a long time before he has to compete for the job in 2024. But like, is Malik Murphy going to start over him in 2024? Mm, He looked really good. And it's just a lot to put on somebody who I don't think has, I don't want to say shown it. I mean, none of these guys have played snaps that we're talking about in the class of 2023, but it's, Oh boy, the the pressure on Arch is going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot. And I, I I think that, again, Arch Manning committing to Texas was about a lot more than a quarterback committing to Texas. It was about how people viewed the program. It was about how recruits viewed the program. And the other thing that I'll say is that it seems like the Manning family has been very serious about internally treating him like a normal recruit and not trying to be a showboater, you know, all this sort of stuff. It seems like he's handled this process really well. But it's, it's, I think, going to be a lot to figure out. How does he handle the idea of potentially being in a real quarterback battle? Or, or for example, what if Ewers didn't leave after this year? I don't think that that's an absolute lock. I, I think it's very likely. It, I don't know. There's just so many dynamics that are going to impact Arch Manning these next couple of years that I... I just went with players who I felt more sure about. I know that these guys are going to have the potential to to actually change the programs that they play on with their play. That That's a lot for me based on what I've seen from Arch Manning so far. I think that makes sense. So, okay, we're going to move to then the class of 2022, which is guys who have played one year of college football right now. But they're going to be, they'll be third year guys in the first year of the 12 team playoff in 2024. And we'll do that next on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. All right, so I do, it's like if people are saying like, why why, why, why are you guys doing this? What's the point of this, like to be projecting this early? I'm just going to run through, I'm looking at names, Shahan, 
from the class of 2020. So the guys who were juniors last season, and if we had done this back then, if we had had a show back then and said, hey, who do we think players from the class of 20 that might impact the playoff three years from now when they're juniors in 2020? You know, there are guys who would have done it. Bryce Young would have been on that list. And again, when you're talking about a 12-team playoff, you're just opening things up for more teams. Brian Brzee at Clemson. He didn't make the playoff, but in the 12-team world, Clemson was kind of right in the thick of it anyway, more than people realized. So he mattered uh, in that group. Will Anderson at Alabama would have been on that list. Keely Ringo from Georgia. Paris Johnson at Ohio State. Jalen Carter at Georgia. Trenton Simpson at Clemson. Miles Murphy at Clemson. If he didn't get hurt, Jackson Smith and Jigba at Ohio State. Uh, let's see, Bijan Robinson at Texas. Again, if Texas could have been a little, a little bit more, but if they're in a 12-team playoff, you open more opportunity. Michael Mayer at Notre Dame in a 12-team world. You know, I don't know. Would they have been more in the mix at all? Uh, let's see, C.J. Stroud at Ohio State. Broderick Jones, the tackle at Georgia. Darnell Washington, the tight end at Georgia. So this is Jalen McMillan at Washington, who is one of the 2,000-yard receivers at Washington. And again, in a 12-team playoff world, it's like, oh, my gosh, how did Washington make the 12-team playoff? Well, they threw the ball as well as anybody in the country, and Jalen McMillan was part of that. That's what we're talking about here. It's not 100%, but I just read like the top 30 guys, and I read like 10 or 12 names. So that's why we're doing this here. And for 2022, I'll start with a guy. Again, I'm trying not to do only quarterbacks. And I'll say Josh Connerly, who's an offensive tackle at Oregon, who was a big get late last August for Oregon, late in the process. They beat out USC. They beat out Michigan for him. He's projected to be the starting left tackle for Oregon this year. Bo Nix is back as the the starting quarterback as a year six college guy at Oregon this year. So then in 2024, they'll be moving on to somebody. Ty Thompson is a, is a, a big-time recruit who's been biding his time at Oregon. If he sticks around, he potentially in 2024 at Oregon would be a first-year starter in year four in college. But having a left tackle that you can believe in who's going to get a year of experience this year. All I mean, I think this guy's going to be good. And so we're trying to talk about, can Oregon, what does it look like for Oregon? under Dan Lanning, to be a playoff caliber team in a 12-team world, you know, having a really good left tackle. And that was a big recruiting win for them when they got Josh Connerly. And so, you know, there'll be a quarterback transition, but I think Oregon could be in the 12-team mix. And so I went with Connerly, who, you know, was around as a freshman last year, but will start this year for the Ducks. I, I didn't realize that we were going to just like uh, when we decided to to not lean too much on quarterbacks that we were just going to pick all the tackles. But honestly, I yeah. respect it. I, I don't think that most podcasts get stuck in the the rut of picking too many offensive tackles in their draft. So I like yeah. it. No, he's a big time player. He was a big time recruit when he decided to come to Oregon, uh, even after Mario Cristobal left. And and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, especially especially playing in the Pac-12. There are not tackles like him, man. <laughs> there are not tackles like him playing on the West Coast. So he has the chance to be, I think, really special, especially when they're going up against the Utahs and the Washingtons of the world. I think that he's going to be an absolute game changer for them. And like you said, I certainly don't have a ton of confidence in their quarterback room right now. So to be able to build something strong around them, I think that that puts you in a really good position and sets you up in a nice way heading forward. All right. Who else do you have in 2022? So I, I looked to Notre Dame. I, I did consider CJ Carr in the class of 2024. 
but uh, decided to go in a different direction. Quarter, quarterback who is the grandson of Lloyd Carr and picked Notre Dame yes. over Michigan, which like seemed like a big thing at the moment, but then Michigan got Jaden Davis, and everybody's happy. I just realized that actually my guy is a class of 2023 guy, but I'm going to go with him. Yeah. Oh. Well, there you go. Let's do yes. it. I've talked about this guy quite a bit all offseason. This, this is why I, I just put together a list of guys, man. I don't know. I didn't categorize them. Come on now. Uh, years. I don't know. Years. <laughs> years. Years are hard. As this guy played, I don't even know at this point. Um, But I've talked about this guy a lot this offseason. I think that one of the biggest issues that Notre Dame has faced, uh, especially offensively, is they have not landed players who are game changers at the skill positions. And I think that Jaden Greathouse, their freshman receiver, has a chance to be that. The reviews from camp have been unbelievable so far. Uh, he is He's apparently built a good relationship with Sam Hartman, their, their starting quarterback for 2023. I actually think that if some things break right, Notre Dame could be a contender in this four-team playoff before even getting to the 12-team playoff. But he is a game changer. He is a legitimate NFL wide receiver, a you know, a second, third round type pick at that position. Uh, Notre Dame's had guys come through, but they've been more in the big body, almost pseudo tight end roles like the Chase Claypool types. This is a type of player who's a great route runner. He is big bodied, but he's also very explosive. He can get open down the field. He's just a different type of player than what you see at Notre Dame. And I think that you look at him um, – you know, that there's a couple other players. Uh, Braylon James is another receiver in that same recruiting class, also from the state of Texas, also from Austin, by the way, both these kids. Um, it's just going to give them a ceiling that they never had under Brian Kelly. They never had that kind of ceiling when Brian Kelly was uh, was the head coach over there. And I think that already you see Marcus Freeman making that pitch to offensive skill talent that we want to be more than what we've been the past couple of years. Landing Sam Hartman, of course, a big part of that as well. Uh, but I think Jaden Greathouse, potentially, by the time that he's done at Notre Dame, could be an All-America type receiver and potentially a, a high NFL draft pick. And you can give some love to your guy, Chancey Stuckey. Yeah. Right? Who the, <laughs> Notre right. Dame, the Notre Dame receivers yeah. coach they, they took from That's Baylor. Right. I forgot about that. <laughs> when, when we had Eric Hansen, who covers Notre Dame on the podcast a couple weeks ago, he was talking about last, so for instance, last year in the opener against Ohio State, Notre Dame completed 10 passes only th- in the whole game. Only three of them were to receivers. Five of them went to Michael Mayer. Their whole off, their whole passing offense was thrown well, to Michael Mayer. This is a this is an Oregon State against Oregon type of stat. Yeah, and they gave Ohio State all they could handle yeah. while only completing yeah. ten passes in that game. And so that idea, you know, Lorenzo Styles transfers from Notre Dame to Ohio State this spring. He's going to move from receiver to cornerback. He caught a fifty yard pass in the first play of that game last year. But Eric was saying that like Lorenzo Styles might have only been like the fourth or fifth or sixth guy on the depth chart because. Notre Dame is revamping its receivers room. So they're going to start probably three guys who are second or third year guys. Tobias Merriweather is a guy who is a pretty highly rated receiver who might make a jump this year in year two at Notre Dame. And then they have these three freshmen who are there right now that have a chance. They're changing. And so the Notre Dame that you see and Sam Hartman is such a it's a great move to like drop this guy and he's ready to go. But they're going to have targets for him. So whatever you thought Notre Dame has been offensively. And by the way, they changed offensive coordinators, not by choice, but they did. We don't know. Like I think you throw out the past at Notre Dame when it comes to offense. Like this is a new world. And I, I talked about this recently. You know what Wisconsin is doing 
They're going to start throwing the ball. I think Notre Dame applies is similar as well. When you think about what Ohio State was offensively before Ryan Day, it's like, oh, well, back, it doesn't matter. Because Ryan Day got here, there was a decision by Urban Meyer, I want to throw the ball more. They bring in Ryan Day, now he's the head coach. They're a completely different offense. I think Notre Dame, three years from now, it might be like, okay, remember back when? Doesn't matter. It's a new world. Same uniforms, new world. Wisconsin with Phil Longo, same uniforms, new world. So prepare for that. You just have to realize, like, programs change, man. So when you bring in receivers and quarterbacks and you bring in a philosophy and your head coach is on board – and you have play callers who are willing to let it rip a little bit, Notre Dame might be making that transition. And Georgia and Michigan and other places show us, Bama showed us for a long time, you don't have to throw the ball to win, but a lot of places, like the way the game has evolved, maybe you have to get there. And so Ohio State got there a little ahead, but now we're talking about in this discussion, is Georgia going to get there more? Is Michigan going to get there more? Is Notre Dame? Is Wisconsin? Like, this is the world. So then what, what do we end up talking about here? We end up talking about quarterbacks. We end up talking about receivers. We end up talking about offensive tackles because it's the path. It's not the only path, but it's the most popular path. And if you want to make the 12-team playoff, I'll be curious when we get there, Shahan, and the 12 teams get in, how many of them do we think of as throwing teams? Is that your identity? Or that at least there's a level of competence and that's this discussion is all around that. So I think those Notre Dame guys, don't, like this, could potentially be transformational for Notre Dame. No, and uh, so so two things. First of all, yeah, Chancey Secchi, I think that that's a that's a good name drop. I mean, coming from the state of Texas, these two top guys that we're talking about, both from the state of Texas, right? Uh, like I mentioned, Jaden Greathouse played at Austin Westlake, arguably the best program right now in Texas high school football, next to Kate Klubnick. And, uh, and won state championships there. And, and Kate Klubnick, obviously not the quarterback at Clemson. And so I think that's a significant move. I think that it is not an accident that they hired a wide receiver coach who was coaching in the state of Texas. Also, Chancey Stuckey, before he came to Baylor, was working at Clemson, uh, as I believe he was a grad assistant or some sort of role like that. Um, but you know, Clemson, Hasn't gotten receivers like that in a little while, too. So, I mean, he is somebody who knows how to do this at a high level. And I think that, that was a really shrewd move by Notre Dame to bring Chancey Stuckey aboard. And the other part of this, too, is that my question about Tommy Reese when he took over at Alabama is I know that Tommy Reese is pretty good at making something out of nothing, of putting guys in pretty good positions. But now, and this is going to be the question for Notre Dame that I'm going to be really curious to answer. This isn't about working with limitations. This is about creating something. This is about having a vision for what you want to do. And I think that with Sam Hartman coming in, with these receivers coming in, I think that Marcus Freeman, at least, seems to have a vision of what he wants the team to be. And uh, I think that they're recruiting to that at a high level. And maybe 2023 is when we first start to finally see that come together. All right. My last thing here is 2022, but it's a trio. Okay. And I'm going to lump them together. We're allowed to lump yeah, on this sure. podcast. We allow lumping. And it is three guys from Penn State that yeah. have a tran- chance to be transformational for Penn State. And that as it worked out, I mean, you take the players when they're ready, but they are all targeted. They'll be third-year guys in 2024 with lots of experience. And could they get Penn State over the top? And it is Danny Dennis Sutton, who was the star defensively of the spring game for Penn State. In April, he was the number 29 overall recruit in the class of 2022. It's Nick Singleton at running back, who we saw what he can do last year. I think 
this year and then especially next year. He has a chance to be among the best running backs in the country. And then Drew Aller at quarterback, who was the backup behind Sean Clifford last year, played a little bit, will be the starter for Penn State this year, was a five-star quarterback, and again, has a chance to elevate Penn State there. So again, positions of need, quarterback, running back, let's go. They often, usually Penn State finds receivers. And then Danny Dennis Sutton as a game changer, potentially on the defensive line, all guys who will be second-year players in 2023, third-year players in 2024. And that's not Penn State with three recruits among the top 35 in the nation. And they all feel like they're on a, a path. I'm not just grabbing names here. Aller and Singleton, I mean, Aller's Aller. Singleton showed it on the field last year. And Danny Dennis Sutton, again, spring game, that's all they were talking about on that defense. There's a chance, Shahan. And again, in a 12-team playoff, Ohio State's no longer a roadblock for Penn State. They've been a roadblock. They've been a roadblock for Penn State. Penn State's really good. Penn State last last year lost to two playoff teams, only two losses, Ohio State and Michigan. In the new world, that's a playoff team. So I think Penn State by 24 has a chance to be the best version of Penn State maybe that we've seen in a decade, and also the opportunity opens up. No, I I think it's a good pick. I think it's a really, really good pick. I had specifically Drew Aller on uh, on my list because I think that quarterback is really the thing that they've been waiting on. They've had these good players come through. I mean, Trace McSorley was a good player for Penn State. Uh, You know, Sean Clifford, for all of the, the criticism, I think was a really good player for them. But they were limited. They, you know, it was again, like I was mentioning with Notre Dame, it was about making the most out of what they could do. Drew Aller can do anything. He can do everything. And and I think that that has to change the way that Penn State structures its entire offense. And I think I think that Mike Yersich is a great offensive coordinator to maybe pull some of this stuff together. And, and you mentioned the three guys, obviously, with Danny Dennis Sutton, Nick Singleton, and Drew Aller. I think you can also throw in Caden Sanders, who is the number 55 player and number seven receiver in the country as maybe being that, you know, the, the Parker Washington replacement, the Jahan Dotson replacement, potentially. Maybe it's not 23, but I think by 24 for sure. Katron Allen is already a known thing. Drew Shelton, uh, you know, obviously the number 12 tackle in the country in that class. This class of 2022, which it's kind of funny. It only rated as the number six class in the country, which is like, which is good not not like you know it's not game changing but this class has the makings of a college football playoff class just because of the combination of the guys that they got the positions that they got it at and the timeline that they're going to be on and and we've already seen so much from guys in this class who maybe weren't just those five-star players as well so i i really like what they've got going on there. And, uh, and, and I agree. I think that you have to give them mention, especially when they get to a world where they don't have to beat both Ohio State and Michigan to make the college football playoff. I try to be circumspect with Caden Saunders because he went to the high school that my daughters go to, and I watched every snap he played <laughs> his senior year of high school football. I love it. Uh, and he's a, he's, a, he's a great young man, and he was a receiver who they got they, – by his senior year, they triple-teamed him every play, and they had to play him at quarterback sometimes because it was the only way to get him the ball. And uh, he can scoot, man. He can really scoot, <laughs> so he does have a chance to, to be that next Penn State receiver. Uh, that is it on my list. Okay. Is there anybody left on your list? Yeah, I've got two left on my list uh honestly i i made a giant list i don't know but uh <laughs> and, and their numbers how many where they're from whatever it's just 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 guys playing ball i mean i mean i put together an official list of nine and then mentioned like four other players so you know how it is yeah. uh 
so two defenders, two defenders. We haven't done a ton of defenders on this list, so I'm, I'm going to finish with two defenders. One, somebody who broke out last year and is going to be a game changer, Harold Perkins, linebacker at LSU. He is he is LSU's Will Anderson. I mean, there's there's no other way to say it. He is LSU's Will Anderson. His finish to the year, especially that game against Arkansas where LSU's offense struggled, he is in a lot of ways the reason that LSU won the SEC West this past year as a freshman. Now, he's still trying to figure out how to play football a little bit. He's kind of just a force of nature right now. I think that Will Anderson was a little more uh, a little more polished maybe as a freshman than Harold Perkins was, but the upside is unbelievable, and you've got a great, great, great defensive staff led by Matt House at LSU that's going to put him in really good position. So LSU is going to be a contender for a while. Uh, I, I've mentioned, I think that, you know, when you look at this 2023 schedule, there's four teams in the SEC who I think are just head and shoulders above the rest of the field, uh, being Alabama, Georgia, LSU, and Tennessee. You know, they're going to have a chance, I think. And and certainly we've talked about Alabama is not unbeatable by any means. So LSU really has a chance, I think, to come back and maybe win the SEC West again. And with the way the schedule sets up, who knows? That could mean a, a potential playoff berth. I like it. I think mentioning Howard Perkins there, like, what does that look like? It's like, I don't know. Does Michigan make the playoff in 21 without Aiden Hutchinson? Sure. Does Ohio State make the playoff in 19 without Chase Young? Everything that Will Anderson did uh, opposite Bryce Young to rate, does, does, I mean, it's hard with Georgia because there's so many, but it's like, do you think N'Kobe Dean and Jordan Davis in 21 and then Jalen Carter and all their great young stars? I mean, you know, it matters. Defensive guys can do that. And, you know, Isaiah Simmons at Clemson, like you just find rare dudes who feel like they're all over the field and make the plays that make you a playoff team. He can win. Harold Perkins can win LSU a game in 2024. That is the game that's the difference between them making the playoff or not. And then if they get in the playoff, offenses will have the game plan for him. So I'm glad that you're throwing some defensive guys in the mix. Who's your last guy? So I, I'm curious if you can actually guess who my last guy is. Uh, he's a defensive transfer. He's a defensive transfer who will still be around yes. in, in 2024. Yes. Okay. I'm going to be bad at this because <laughs> I'm, because I'm like, I'm, I have, you're going to kick yourself. When I, I just say have it's... the guys in my head. I have the guys in my head for 23, like Omar Spates and, and, Jared Verse was a transfer once upon a time at Florida State, but I, I don't have a guy. I, I mean, think of what's the name of the Chicago NFL franchise? Oh, Bear Alexander. <laughs> Bear Alexander. Okay. Yeah. Uh, obviously, somebody who one. also started in the state of Texas uh, and then ended up at IMG. So now he's considered a Florida recruit, which is garbage, but that's beside the point. Um, Bear Alexander probably would start at Georgia this year. If not, he would be part of a major rotation at Georgia. And now one of the best interior players in the entire country is going to be playing for Alex Grinch at USC for at least two more years. I think that Bear Alexander. Well, well it's, it's, uh, let me interrupt there. He'll be playing for USC. <laughs> That's true. He'll be playing for USC for at least two more years. But, um, but he is, he is a big time player. He is a big, big time player. Also mentioned uh, with that, you know, Bear Alexander to me is like, the game changer, but Anthony Lucas also coming over from Texas A&M, also a big time player. It's funny looking back at the rankings because I think that people know what Bear Alexander is and what his potential was. He was only the 15th ranked defensive lineman in the class. I, I don't really know what happened there. That doesn't make much sense to me, but uh, 
a total game changer at the position. Just so much activity, so much movement. Uh, again, I mentioned it before, especially with this upcoming 2023 season. There are not players in the Pac-12 that are like him. <laughs> Nobody is built to go up against a body like that. And I think that when you look at USC, I mean, they have to get bulkier. That is such a big part of what they're going to need to do during their transition to the Big Ten. And I think that Bear Alexander is not just the kind of player who's going to be a monster in the Pac-12. There's not a lot of guys in the Big Ten, I think, who have bulk like this mixed with the kind of explosion that he has. I mean, he is a big-time player. I think that he has unlimited upside. And the big thing with having a player like that, and especially combining Bear Alexander and Anthony Lucas at least by 2024, is that makes playing defense so much easier when you can clog those gaps with two players like that, two of the best players on the interior in the entire country. So I I think you have to be really excited about that. If you're USC, I think that that he has the potential to be a game changing type player for them. And the thing is too, I, I mean, one thing I point to a lot, you know, look at this class of 2022 and look at the defensive line rankings. Texas A&M got number one, number three, number four, number six, number eight, number nine, or, or sorry, and number eight. And so much of that is because Texas A&M had Miles Garrett come through this program. And now people are mm. like, oh, Miles Garrett did it. Maybe I can too. And like they have the same defensive line coach there who people absolutely love and also hosts an amazing barbecue cookout, which is a side thing. But like... He, I think, Bear Alexander, I think, has the potential to be that kind of player at at uh, at USC, where he just comes through and causes so much havoc and is so much fun to watch that people are like, oh, maybe I will stay out west instead of going to Georgia, instead of going to Texas A&M, going to Alabama. And if you win some of those battles, just a couple of those battles, that dynamically changes the way that USC is able to to go into the world because that was not happening at Oklahoma. You're already seeing USC win battles under Lincoln Riley that Oklahoma did not win on the defensive side of the ball. And uh, and, and I think that it has the potential to be really, really special. Bear Alexander, 169 snaps last year at Georgia, 24 against LSU in the SEC championship game, 16 against Ohio State in the semifinal, 14 against TCU in the national title game. Good PFF grade. And again, they had four guys they were going to rotate at defensive tackle. Jalen Carter first and foremost, but Zion Logue and Nazir Stackhouse and Will Brinson. Like, so he's behind that, but it's like he's next. He was next, and now he's next at USC instead of next at Georgia. And uh, and I do think that's that's right. Like, I, I think when we do stuff like this, the, the goal is – find good programs who are maybe elevating at certain positions that they haven't had guys like that before. And I think we had a lot of guys like that. And then for instance, we know what Texas A&M has done on the recruiting trail. We didn't talk about any Texas A&M guys who were still at Texas A&M. We're talking about the playoffs. Because at the moment, we don't believe that that's going to lead to anything. So there's a recruiting discussion. Hey, you won the recruiting crowd. And that does matter. Like on, on signing day, when you say, here's the team that has the number one class, I don't want to poo poo that. But that's not the discussion we're having today. We're having the development impact. Your program is good enough for the recruiting to have an effect. And that's why we're talking a lot about teams like Georgia and Alabama and Ohio State. And then we're talking about teams that have a chance to level up because they have a foundation. Because Tennessee's already done something. Penn State's done something. UCLA's done something. Oregon's done something. And now could they be even better? 
and Texas A&M, we can't have that conversation. You can't finish wet last in your division and then have us talk about you about, hey, you're recruiting, might get you. you're not there. Right. You got to show us something on the field, man. And then maybe we can have the discussion. I think that one thing is that's going to be so interesting these next two years or so is we've talked about in the past, the thing that Alabama and Georgia have done that other teams just can't do is stacking defensive line talents. And, you know, mm. we've, we've seen at Alabama just this machine come through. But what I'll say to that, too, is you look at the 2021 class, you look at the 2022 class, even look at the 2023 class. And Texas A&M landed a lot of these guys who Alabama and even Georgia would have landed in the past and are doing absolutely nothing with them. So like all of a sudden you are in this position where the top teams in college football, including Alabama and Georgia, who are obviously still going to be really good. Suddenly, like it's, it's not even that they don't have these. It's like these guys don't exist in competitive college football right now. You've basically taken them out. So, like, if you take out five of the top eight players on the defensive line in the class of 2022 and they're just irrelevant to college football, that's going to be a really weird dynamic when we get to maybe 2024. Hmm. When, you know, we've seen, I think, you know, one thing that, that stood out to me is Alabama, these past two or three classes, has recruited really well uh, on the defensive line, but they're all edge guys. None of them are interior guys, right? Like a Keon Keeley, he's, he's an edge guy. He's not an interior guy. How does that impact things? I think we saw that this past year with obviously Alabama being so dependent on Will Anderson and Dallas Turner at the linebacker spots to create pressure. So I, I don't know that that's not really related, I guess, so much, but it, it's a it's a trend that I'm going to be keeping a close eye on because I don't know. I mean, we can't just assume that George is going to have more Jordan Davises and more Jalen Carters because some of them have been taken away by Texas A&M dicking around over there. And it is one of those where it doesn't mean that we think Texas A&M is going to be a playoff nope. team, but it's it's what they took away right. from teams that are legitimate playoff contenders. And are they, even if they're not strengthening themselves, are they weakening someone else? Which is everything in recruiting. There's a domino effect to everything. But then when when it's your guys, then you've got to make something happen. Okay, we appreciate you guys making us part of your college football week. We'll have a coach ranking show coming up later in the week here. Make sure you are reading Shahan at cbssports.com. For now, for Shahan J. Haraja, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. 